Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been gathering and sharing big ideas in little doses from some of the most interesting and creative thinkers on earth. On the Think Again podcast, we take ourselves out of our comfort zone, surprising me and my guests with uh, conversation starters that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very, very happy to be joined by an old friend of Big Thinks and mine, uh, Jonathan Keats. He's been called an experimental philosopher, a conceptual artist. He lives multiple lives. Uh, in his life as an experimental philosopher, he holds up a kind of a warped mirror to the sort of thing that we do here at Big Think, asking questions like, can I genetically engineer God in a Petri dish? Can I make a movie that houseplants would enjoy? Could I sell real estate in a parallel dimension? In his other life, the reason he's here today, uh, Jonathan is a, also a great science writer. His latest book is about inventor, scientist, eccentric genius Buckminster Fuller, who liked to be known as Bucky, and what we may still have to learn from him. It's called You Belong to the Universe, Buckminster Fuller and the Future. It's from Oxford University Press. Welcome to Think Again, Jonathan. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. It's so great to have you here. Before I read your book, what I knew about Buckminster Fuller, you could have maybe filled a thimble with. You know, I associated him with Bucky Balls, which are mag magnets that I don't even know to what extent he was involved in Not one creating. Bit. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. So that that was a totally wrong association. Also, the sort of geodesic dome houses, and I may even be saying that wrong. But I learned a great deal about him from your book. And I guess the central thesis there, as I understand it, is that the legacy that we think he left is not really the not the real legacy that he left in terms of the ideas of his that are most valuable to us. Yes, I, I believe that he very deliberately went about crafting a personal myth that became the basis upon which his acolytes after his death have promoted him and that we know him today, but that it has been a disservice to him right. and has really, instead of opening up his ideas in ways that we can engage them today, has turned him into somewhat of a vaudeville act or a museum <laughs> piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that, that sort of self-mythologizing, larger-than-life image that he projected and he, you know, basically made things up, rewrote his own autobiography. How? connected are whatever his genius may be and this kind of confabulation? The confabulation, I believe, was <laughs> essential to Fuller in terms of how he imagined himself and also how he communicated ideas that would have been totally unfathomable had he not put them in some sort of a narrative form. Essentially what Fuller was doing for his entire life was thinking about how to make the world work for, quoting him here, for 100% of humanity, and trying to figure out the interconnectedness of the world's problems, and also to figure out ways in which to work out global solutions to them, right. often applying ideas from the far future, ideas that were utterly impossible in his own time, often involving alloys that had not yet been invented. But in order to get people on board for that project as a whole, right. which was so foreign to the way in which people thought then, and which we think 
today to be something that is uh, what we call world-changing, though I don't think that we really have entirely learned how to think like Fuller. But in order to get there in the first place, it required a sort of a personal myth that explained how he got to think in the way that he did as this what he called himself a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist. Right, what right. is that? Well, in order to say what that is, I think that he said a lot about who he was, most of which was made up, but it worked in the way that great fiction does. Right. He came to understand what that might be, and also he communicated it well enough that he could get others on board to be involved in his projects. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, especially in the context of the time in which he was most active, I mean, which you, what would you say, the 40s to the 60s, or what's it's his kind of most fertile Even much period? more than that. To me, he really starts to do interesting work in the early 30s. Okay. And this is when he decides that he needs to figure out how to address the slums that he attributes to the death of his first daughter from meningitis. He blames slum conditions for the death of his first daughter. And right. he sets out to change the world first by figuring out how to break the gridlock of the slum. And the solution that he comes up with to that ultimately involves zeppelins that are able to fly mobile structures anywhere on the planet dropping a bomb in order to provide some sort of a foundation and then dropping your house wherever you may want to live with a flying car as a way to be able to get around between you and your neighbors. So right. he has a, this incredibly fantastical way in which he puts things together and it's easy to dismiss. It's kind of crackpot. But at the same time, it's absolutely ingenious because of the fact that while it would not be a good idea for us all to live in houses <laughs> all over the world with flying cars to get us around, nevertheless, this way of thinking his way out of gridlock and thinking about the housing problem in much broader terms than just we need somehow to have a few more soup kitchens, that to me is where it gets started. And that's in the 30s and that goes on until he dies in the early 80s and he kind of becomes a bit more of a demagogue as time goes on, but right. certainly... Kind of defending his own ideas and legacy against his critics. Well, yes, yeah. and also seeing when he comes upon the geodesic dome as an invention which in many ways is connected to that initial problem, to the death of his first daughter, to the problem of housing and making housing mobile, first of all because it means that you can you can break the gridlock of the city. Secondly, right. because it means that you can make houses in factories, which is the way the cars are made, which is a way to make them cheap and readily available and to turn them into these perfect dwelling machines. And so he ends up with the geodesic dome as a solution to that problem. But then the geodesic dome becomes, well, he has a patent on it. He makes money every time that one is sold which he's using for honorable ends of doing additional research, but every single problem, <laughs> the solution becomes the dome or some variation on it, and it's just highly detrimental, I think, to the imagination that he started out with, especially in terms of those who embrace his ideas and decide that the dome is the answer to everything without any of the flexibility of mind that he had. And then when the dome leaks, they become his worst enemy. Because right. the dome, my house leaked. 
Therefore, yeah. everything that Fuller ever thought of was stupid. And that is right. the story of so many of the disillusioned followers of the Fuller cult. Do you think there's anyone at this point with, you know, a Fuller 2.0? You know, Elon Musk I was thinking of, except maybe without the humanitarian component. I mean, he sort of has a humanitarian component to his vision, but it's, it's very Muskian. You know, he, mm -hmm. he wants us all to move to Mars because that would be cool and extend the no, I don't I think, know, scope of the human race. Yeah. No, I think that, that Musk is an interesting <laughs> case as far as that's concerned. I would say that maybe another way of looking at it is to say Google is fuller today and yet isn't. And the way in which Google is not fuller right. is probably more telling than the ways in which Google is and tells us a lot about what we still need as a society to get by going back to Fuller as this source. Like the lack of egalitarianism, you mean? Mm. In, in, I mean, Google, the, the, th these technologies distribute information, but they don't necessarily have a humanitarian vision in terms of right. ending poverty and, and, and making every, you know, giving everyone equal opportunity. Google will happily, I think, go about ending poverty as long as shareholders benefit. Right. But the problem is that it is a corporation right. and it needs to act as one. Fuller was not a corporation. And Fuller was in this sort of moonshot, world-changing way that Google now operates and that Musk does through his various companies. Right. Fuller was doing so without all of the corporate obligations involved. In fact, he was doing so as a totally independent operator, which had its weaknesses, right. but it had this enormous strength of, first of all, that there was some sort of a personal integrity at the base of it, and secondly, that there was this incredible flexibility. I mean, the fact that you end up with a three-wheel car <laughs> as a result of trying to address the fact that your daughter died of meningitis, and that that three-wheel car then leads you to this impassioned embrace of biomimicry because you imagine that that car has the aerodynamics of a bird or a fish, which in fact it really doesn't, right. and it doesn't really work, but nevertheless it gets you into this biomimetic mindset that you then are attempting to apply in everything else that you do. This way in which one thing leads to another and that leads to another and he doesn't need to address some bottom line at any point. There's no real accountability. Right. That can lead to castles in the sky, but it can also lead, well, to the geodesic dome. Right. And in his case, it's utilitarian in the sense that it's creative problem solving from one problem to the next. But it reminds me a little bit of your work as an experimental philosopher in terms of the possibility of impossible things existing in our world. I mean, basically, ha you know, somebody who is able to bring about, and sometimes they fail, totally impossible things, which has to enrich our world, you know? I identify <laughs> deeply with him to a certain extent, and then we part ways. And the reason that I wrote the book was because of the ways in which I feel like, in my own work, I am attempting to put together highly unlikely and seemingly unrelated phenomena 
So for instance, a project that I've spoken on Big Think about, the attempt to apply string theory to real estate development. That in right. string theory, you have all of these extra dimensions of space that are posited, and no one is using them for purposes of developing real estate. And you have error <laughs> rights as a legal framework. So to therefore to say that I'm going to purchase those rights in the extra dimensions of space, and I'm going to then develop those dimensions. So that in terms of finding disparate yet somehow interconnected phenomena and putting them together in unexpected ways, there is some sort of a, I'm drawing from Fuller's astounding way in which he takes from different worlds and puts things together. But in my case, I am not doing so because I expect to become a real estate mogul or because I necessarily expect this to succeed. Getting plumbing into dimensions that are plank link right. <laughs> is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And that's why I'm doing it is because I think that it puts us into the state of asking how do we relate to science at the point that science gets beyond any sort of experiential or even any sort of experimental realm. And how do we deal with property when we recognize that property actually has some of the similar phenomena of being this abstraction. What does it mean to own something? All of these questions, right. those are what are interesting to me. And I get there through this overlap and overlay. Fuller is, on the other hand, and this is where we part ways, he is genuinely trying to build this world in which you have, well, in the early stage, in which you have zeppelins that are dropping bombs in order to be able to deliver houses that are built in factories like Model T Fords, and therefore <laughs> you need a flying car and the wings have to inflate, but you don't have the right sort of rubber to inflate the wings, so therefore you end up building the ground taxing mechanism. But all of it is in utter and complete uh, engineering sort of grounded right. attempt to actually do it. When he says that he wants to build a dome over Manhattan in order to control the climate within the city. He wants he, to build the and dome. And he yeah. works <laughs> as hard as he can to do it. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that sort of an undertaking, but for me, coming out of philosophy as opposed to coming out of engineering, which he doesn't, but which he essentially makes himself an engineer by his own practice. For me, coming out of philosophy, I'm interested in that as a provocation to make it so that we can explore how we want to live right. together in a society, how we address the climate in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, for me, there's also some overlap in this willingness to say why not about mm -hmm. things to which everyone else has already said because, you know? Absolutely, and, <laughs> like, and, and I think that, I think that another overlap, and I certainly don't want in any way to claim to be Fuller, <laughs> I think that another overlap is that, so Fuller dropped out of Harvard twice, or he was fired as he put it, and <laughs> I actually did graduate college, but I don't have any advanced degree. I never studied science or engineering in any sort of formal way. Right. I'm self-taught, so I identify with his sort of autodidactic, polymath way DIY of looking of, at yeah. the world yeah. and of thinking about the world that I don't feel like anything is out of bounds. And I feel like the fact that I am not an expert, that I do not have specialization, gives me this ability to put things together in ways that are exactly as you said earlier, this sort of, well, why not? So in my own practice, I guess that I'm trying to figure out in at some level 
how to be in the world today as Fuller was in the world in his own time, but on my own terms. It needs to be not only me, but it needs to be all of us. Everyone, yeah. That it's very difficult to imagine a Fuller figure in the world today. Someone who is, on the one hand, talking to the Secretary General of the United Nations, also is consulting with the Marine Corps on mobile units for warfare, <laughs> right. and is a hero of the hippies who is lecturing to thousands of drugged students who then go and found Drop City. It, it, it's very difficult to sort of imagine that kind of a public intellectual, especially in a world where public intellectualism has been reduced to the length of a TED talk and also to the structural constraints of it, which to me are highly problematic. The attention span, however, that the TED talk suggests is probably a reality. And so how do we get around that? Maybe right. we distribute fuller. Maybe by each one of us becoming fuller in some way, becoming comprehensive anticipatory design scientists at some level, maybe that distributes it in a way that is possible in our incredibly distracted yet interconnected world. Well, and that is actually a perfect segue into the next part of the show because one of the things that this show tries to do is to play around with the idea of expertise, which is at the heart of what Big Think has always been about. And in this, this part of the show, you and I are total non-experts uh, encountering ideas that may be completely out of either of our fields. So the first one is Jim Gaffigan. Stand-up comedy has a rich history of being associated with being against censorship. You know, comedians are contrarians. You tell a comedian to not do something, similar to a five-year-old that's sleep-deprived, that will be the first thing they do. So uh, comedians pride themselves on saying, any topic is, nothing's off limits, da, da, da. That being said, I also think that, as a comedian, I believe that there's nothing that's off limits. But I do think that the PC culture in my opinion, is of great value. Our idea of freedom today is a much better fulfilling idea of freedom than our founding fathers even envisioned, probably. But it's the same notion of freedom. So the idea of politically correctness, I don't think that has to do with censorship. I think that has to do with a certain sensitivity. Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I don't want to just like go charging off if you have something that you're into, or do you want me to lead us um, off either way? Please, I, I have uh, multiple levels of disagreement with <laughs> what he says. Okay, okay. Not for himself, but for what I think an artist or experimental philosopher must do in society, often using comedic means. Okay. Which is to say that I believe that purposely going out to offend somebody for the sake of promoting hate in the world is not something that I personally would have any desire to do, but that we need to use our sensitivity to the ways in which we cannot speak 
about certain topics because they are not considered politically correct, to find projects, to find conversations, to find means by which to see that. that like, it's like other ways in, you're, are you saying other ways into those difficult, other than the most direct? No, I'm, of, I'm saying we need to ascend to the meta level. Okay. I'm saying that hate is a horrible thing but trying simply to cover up for hate that we have by saying that we won't talk about it right. is only promoting that hatred. So I think that it is not simply a matter of being sensitive and therefore avoiding conversation about certain topics, right. but I think that it is a matter of having a conversation at that meta level and not in the direct parental, we need to talk about why we don't talk about hatred, but in a much more subversive way that potentially gets people into an uncomfortable position in which they confront their prejudices. I always thought that South Park did that pretty well. I mean, going yes, totally absolutely. out of the realm of experimental philosophy, I always thought that they did a pretty brilliant job of absolutely. I think that opening it's that Pandora's box. Yeah. Probably one of the best examples <laughs> yeah. that, now that you mention it, it, it really is an excellent example. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I found refreshing about what he just said. The problem is that this conversation has become so boringly binary over the past year. The Atlantic has been writing article after article about how PC culture is destroying campuses and students are hypersensitive and they can't study, uh, you know, they can't uh, deal with anything. That discourse coming from the one side. Which was happening, by the way, in 1990 through 94 right, when right, I was right, in college. Right, 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 right. This is not new. This is not new. Yes. And then on the other hand, students saying, no, you're just a bunch of insensitive old fogies. You don't get it. I mean, mm -hmm. we had John Cleese on here, very, very popular video, in large part because it pissed a lot of people off, <laughs> saying that political correctness mm. is bullshit and mm. just shouldn't exist, you know, and whatever. So to hear him say that it's a kind of a counter resistance or some sort of, you know, it's an expression of something genuine in the culture, right? I found that a little bit refreshing. I, that is to say, I, I'm not okay with the students on Yale surrounding and, and hounding and like trying to tar and feather someone off of the campus. On the other hand, if you have this phenomenon happening all the way, you know, repeatedly across the country, of students making a certain kind of complaint, which is not monolithic and is not all of them anyway, you have to say, okay, what's going on, right? Like something is happening here. We well, should maybe understand what it is. Well, like, it needs to open up conversation yeah. rather than closing it down. Right. And I think that political correctness has always been an attempt to shut down conversation. And I think that comedians, the jester, the trickster, right. is one of the most crucial characters in terms of opening up conversation. And the moment that the trickster or jester abdicates that, it's hard to imagine who else is going to do it. Right. I, I think that by and large, the world of art is not going to do it because by and large, the world of art is concerned with the world of art in a way that's so insular that it's never going to make any difference or any conversation. So it's where, right. the, where, where the artist in any form becomes trickster and is willing to put the world into some sort of non-binary, some right. terms that don't fit either paradigm 
that is where it gets interesting and that's where it's valuable. To go and say what you know is going to be inflammatory on purpose is essentially to operate on the same grounds as those who would suppress it. You're, you're right. entering into the same mindset and you are in both cases promoting a sort of way in which a society is suppressed, the opposite of a, an open liberal society. I mean, I don't know if progression is the wrong word, um, but there is some sort of movement, cultural movement over time, where there are reasons that we don't want to be using the N-word constantly in conversation, whereas that would have been acceptable within the mainstream 50 years ago. I mean, this is not, something is happening, you know? Yes, however, the removal of the N-word from uh, Mark Twain is absolutely right, 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 preposterous. Right. Yes, and also the use of the N-word in rap, for instance, in the 1990s and still, still today yeah, yeah. is an essential part of how you remix identity. Right. The trickster is in the business of remixing identity and all of our assumptions about society. Yes, that is why we need that. And and the you know, it is concerning to hear comedian after comedian, which we have heard over the past year, Chris beginning with Chris Rock, definitely Seinfeld, saying that they don't perform on college campuses anymore because they just the jokes they want to make are not welcome. That's no, it's very that's interesting concerning. Be, because a generation ago or <laughs> I guess a generation, a generation and a half, before I was on college campuses. Um, I was on preschool campuses, but <laughs> it seems to me that that's where the sort of comedy that was willing to break all boundaries and to say what was considered unspeakable, that's where it got started. So it's fascinating right. that... Like, that, again, Lenny Bruce right, or, exactly. you know, George Carlin. Yeah, that it gets that. started there, and now that that gets shut down. And so that makes me wonder what is happening on college campuses, both in the classroom and in those other conversations that take place yeah. between students and between students and the world. What are the implications for the college campus as a generator of culture that goes broader in a more mainstream way in the future? Where is it going to get generated if not on college campuses? Because it seems that they have more or less shut down that possibility. It could be that we're seeing that what's happening there, for better or worse, maybe for worse, is some kind of cultural backlash against flippancy, against irony. You know, I mean, there mm -hmm. was, there, you know, a desire for some new seriousness in a way, you know, uh, taking in seriously of everything. Indeed, but, <laughs> I don't know. But it's at the expense of taking anything seriously because it is only superficially taking things seriously when you do not use tools such as irony to explore what you assumed and what you believed. It is There's a lack of subtlety in well, that seriousness. Well, yeah. no, there's demagoguery. There's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. there's essentially, there are platitudes. Platitudes are not serious. Platitudes are vapid. They're empty. Right. I would say that we need more comedians going into more spaces like the university and making things more uncomfortable and that the university has an obligation to do so. I mean, if colleges are genuinely in the business of education, right. then simply to allow students in their entitled way to say, well, I 
bought this. I bought a, 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 a nice smooth ride. I don't think that that is really doing what a university needs to do. Right. Colleges, as much as they need to have professors who are intelligent and who are advancing research in their field, probably colleges also need comedians on campus. And students need to confront that, and that needs to become part of the educational process, part of the conversation. I propose, possibly funded by university endowments, experimental comedians going undercover as students and actually just disrupting the, the university from the inside. Well, now that you've let that out, it's going to be <laughs> much more difficult to do. Well, not everyone in the world will hear this podcast. Of course they will. will. Okay, well, maybe they will. <laughs> on that note, let's, let's move on to the second of our surprise clips and see, oh, wow, how not to tell children about sex. <laughs> with Dan Savage, who is a lot of fun. We're constantly talking to our children about sex. TV is constantly talking to your children about sex. Uh, the covers of all the trashy tabloids in the supermarket are talking to your kids about sex. We need to let our kids, uh, we need to inform them about the realities of sex because the unrealities of sex on television and film, on tabloids, on the internet, and pornography are coming at them all the time. and you need to explain to them how sex really works and how love really works because if you let just the mass media shape their attitudes and their ideas, uh, it can really warp them. I say this all having screwed up the birds and the bees talk myself. You know, when our son was curious about where babies came from, we explained and we had the, the sex talk at a you know appropriate time. And then one day he came down to the kitchen and jumped up on the kitchen counter, looked at me and narrowed his eyes and said, you and daddy have sex for no reason because you can't make a baby. And it, again, I was just like, oh, fuck. We had left out sex for pleasure, and everybody does, right? And sex for pleasure is 99.99% .99 of the sex that everybody's having on a given weekend. It's the only kind of sex gay people can have, but it's the only kind of sex straight people have most of their lives. Straight people have a handful of children and a lot of sex. Interesting that the producers think that taboos are the appropriate <laughs> topics for us to have a conversation about. Yeah. It says a lot about how they perceive you. Me, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, what do you what's your interpretation of that? Let's start there. Well, I think that I'm <laughs> in the taboo business at some level. Okay. Uh, getting back to what we we're talking about in the case of the first clip, I would say that I'm I'm an artist maybe incidentally because the art world happens to be a place where I can get away with doing what I do, but probably the trickster is the figure that I most identify with if we're talking in the broadest historical terms. Right. Doing philosophy by way of the role of the trickster in society. And therefore, my interest is, how do we have the conversations that we don't typically have the context or the space or the means by which to have. For instance, when I made pornography for plants by right. filming honeybees <laughs> pollinating flowers, well, first of all, I was very interested in trying to titillate the plants. It was an absolutely sincere act on my part to provide the best possible uh, pornography, pornography for, the for this audience by projecting onto their foliage and therefore allowing them vicariously through the shadow play of honeybees to be able to experience 
sex in the way that pornography can deliver. As an asterisk to that, was there some way of determining or did they like it? I don't know whether they liked it. <laughs> uh, I didn't feel that I was really in the business of doing the science in that case. I felt like I was in the business of delivering Making the Making pornography. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And were... so like any good pornographer, <laughs> I was simply trying to, uh, you know, working instinctually, I'm not a plant. <laughs> But nevertheless, trying to do my best as far as that's concerned. But there also is a conversation that happens between humans around that project. <laughs> and that, that conversation can go in any number of different ways. But one of them, I think, does have to do with the way in which we have made sex into this sort of a vicarious sort of experience and pornography as the epitome of that. And what sort of impact does that have on well, on intimacy perhaps is a very literal-minded way of trying to frame it, but more generally, how does our mediated experience of everything in life change our ability to live in the moment and to understand mm -hmm. what is happening in the moment as something other than what happens through some mediated way? So, right, so to right. me, the entering into the taboo of sex, first of all, is a great way to get onto the, the national media with a project that has a budget of approximately under $100 that's showing in a small gallery in Chico, California. <laughs> sex sells. But it also is, I think, a way in which to get us into one of the absolute core realms in which mediation which is something in that clip that we just listened to by way of how tabloids are so much how children encounter, how they understand sex initially. Right. That our understanding of our relationship to each other in terms of that mediation that happens all around us, that conversation becomes possible by entering into the taboo of pornography and becoming a pornographer, but doing so in a manifestly other way, in a trickster way of making the pornography for plants, where we can enter into that conversation from all the way around the bend. Yeah, one, one is told that, you know, there are other countries besides America, where I've spent most of my life, where they have a healthier relationship to sex than we do, and I guess maybe that's true. I don't know, Sweden always comes up in this mm. context. Do you think things are getting better? You've, you largely live in America, spend some time in Italy as well. Do you think things are getting better here or worse in terms of our, you know, sort of nationally screwed up relationship with our own sexuality? Well, I, I mean, we're, we're talking more about sexual identity, but... Talking about sexual identity is certainly relevant, but it's not relevant to the aspect of sexuality that Savage is addressing in that segment. And I think that his observation that sex is all that more, much more present in mediated ways all around us and that everyone, including children, will encounter that just as a matter of being in the world, I think that that all is absolutely true and that there also is the effect that it by and large overshadows any right. other sort of conversation because it predominates. Whether that means that we are a more open or a more closed society as a result, we're both, I, I, I think. I mean, certainly it breaks through a lot of the puritanical 
we are going to censor anything that has to do with the human body right. way of dealing with the problem, in quotation marks, that is sex. But at the same time, it puts a gloss on it that makes it all very glib. Yeah, I mean, well, we, it seems like we have this, you know, Madonna horror complex where either we mm. don't and can't talk about it or it's presented in the most lurid and, as you say, mediated terms. Mm. And that only gets crazier with, like, Snapchat and virtual reality coming down the pike mm. and what, you know, remote sexual titillation via, you know, computerized, computer-attached mm. devices or whatever. Um, and, I don't know, robot sex and so right. on. You know, so it seems like... I mean, again, it's always hard to get perspective on your own culture with respect to, like, how things are changing, but it seems like things are more mediated. And in that sense, I would say that I disagree with Savage because I think that as much as the conversations about sex have to take place... Right. I don't have children, so I don't <laughs> have those conversations, but that those conversations need to take place. I think that also children do need to be exposed to the media of their age from early on in a way that it becomes possible to have an acclimation to it that allows for a critical stance. If you prevent your child from ever knowing about sex until the child goes off, becomes an adult, and gets married, we know why that is problematic, or more generally, why it is problematic not to have the conversation about sex with children. But I think that not having the conversation about media right. and not having the exposure to media in a way that allows for a critical discourse and allows for children to form their own opinions about media, that seems actually to be puritanical as well. Yeah, the idea of like no screen time and keeping children in a little bubble so that you can indoctrinate them with your, mm -hmm. or educate them with sexuality as you see it, the world as you see it. I agree. And I think Dan Savage would probably agree. I mean, that those two things must coincide. Yes, and, and he is a part of that larger culture, so I guess from the standpoint of his own readership, he better be supportive of that at some level. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, that's quite enough about the icky subject of sexuality. <laughs> Let's move on to the third clip, which is... Mary Roach, oh, she is funny. She's a science yes. writer on, yes, I, I know her as you well. would know, yeah. This is diarrhea, not just an Oregon Trail disease, but a serious risk to soldiers. I started out with this, this amazing quotation from William Osler, the father of modern medicine, which is, I think he said this in the 1890s, dysentery has been more fatal to soldiers than powder or shot. The, the statistics were amazing. The Mexican-American war, with diarrhea in Mexico seemed forever linked, sadly, but this ratio of seven to one soldiers killed from disease versus combat wounds, and a lot of it was dysentery. More than it was malaria, it was dysentery. And dysentery is an extreme form of diarrhea. Nowadays, you don't see soldiers dying of diarrhea, but what you do have is situations where, um, especially in special operations, special forces, these folks who are operating, say, out in Somalia or Yemen in, in dealing with villages that are being, you know, insurgents are coming in trying to win pe people over. They're, have, they're, they're sitting down to meals with a lot of, you know, like elders in the village eating food that's not been refrigerated necessarily, water that's not filtered or treated. And they're getting sick at a rate twice that of the average 
enlisted service members. So, th and and they are also doing the really the the high risk classified, you know, go in and take out Osama bin Laden, whatever. So it's a situation that it may be a life or death situation uh, too. You know, you can't sort of stop in the middle of a mission and go, excuse me. I've got a duck behind a rock. They're just in a situation where they're going to soil themselves. And, and I, it was an interesting reporting challenge. I found myself in Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti, where a lot of this counterinsurgency work goes on. So I had to approach strangers over dinner to have conversations uh, about diarrhea, which is an interesting reporting challenge. But they, uh, to them, it wasn't a silly topic. You know, it, was, uh, it was serious, and they had a lot to say about it. So that was really interesting. Well, Jonathan, what shall we say about diarrhea? <laughs> we could go meta. I, I, what I very much like about Mary Roach, I, I know her personally. I have not seen her for quite some time. But what I really admire about her, in addition to the humor and many other obvious things, is the way in which she will ask any question of anybody, and she will allow that to take her anywhere. Right. That sort of openness, that sort of curiosity, which allows her to talk about diarrhea with these soldiers in a mess hall. I think that it's really a paradigm, a model by which we can all get past those taboos. We're back to taboo, and obviously right, right, that right. is the theme here. <laughs> How we can get past those taboos if only we are driven by that really kind of that childlike curiosity that would never allow itself to be censored by those taboos and would allow for us to pursue those questions. And in her case, this is leading to a conversation about a genuine, serious problem that were not for the merry roaches of the world. Right. The world would not be having that conversation. I think that it comes down to a sense of humor on yeah. her part that is what makes the books also so delightful but it's also very much there in the conversation. And I think that the way in which humor can take somebody off guard and allow them to talk about things that they would otherwise censor. And this comes yeah. all the way back around this to comedy. This goes back to what we've been saying, yeah. Which, but so what it is about humor, what is strange about humor, is that it suddenly puts us... It jars our perspective. We're telling ourselves a story at any given time about what this thing means and what I mean in the context of this thing. And the comedy, I guess, just kind of pushes us out of that, lets us look at it creatively. But I think that this is not comedy that we're talking about in the case of... Well, humor, I mean. But, but yeah. I think that, that there is an important distinction. Comedy, to me, is performative. It is an act of putting people deliberately into some other space that philosophically activates within them uh, other ways of, of understanding themselves and the world. Humor is a means by which to achieve that state, but humor is also a means in the case of a conversation to get to underlayers of that conversation, and that is not performance in the sense of having been a kind of a pre-established work. So I don't want to be like the annoying quibbler, but in my mind, humor in mm. conversation has an implied audience. It essentially takes you and me mm -hmm. who are having the conversation and it puts us on a sort of stage in a sense where we can both kind of look at ourselves from the outside. 
I, I, I like that way of describing it. I think that as in the case of any distinction, <laughs> a distinction is useful only as long as it is useful and that we can make distinctions of anything and we can also assimilate anything. So yes, of course, any conversation, even one between humorless, uh, politically correct people on a college <laughs> campus, involves each of those people performing for the other and involves this sort of level at which they are both imagining themselves in some sort of a performative space. Sure. And yet, at the same time, I think that there is a worthwhile distinction to okay. make between when I am creating a work of art, experimental philosophy, okay. whatever you want to call it, there's something that is different. There's a difference between that and performance that we're talking about when we start talking about the performance in conversation. Sure, Not different sure. in kind, maybe, but different in degree and interestingly different in degree. So I think the reason why it's worth making this very long and roundabout <laughs> attempt at parsing what probably is obvious to our listeners <laughs> is to say that comedy needs not only to be for comedians. Performance needs not only to be for performers. Right. And that what Mary Roach is doing in those conversations is not stand-up, is not improv, but is using humor in some of the ways that humor can operate in the case of improv or stand-up or formal comedy right. to take people off guard and to allow them to enter into spaces they otherwise would not, but at the intimate level of that one-on-one -on -one conversation. It can, there's a performance involved in it, but right. it is not for the sake of performance. She is not being funny because she wants a laugh. She's being funny because she naturally is funny, right. but also because she recognizes that that can open up a space in which conversations can happen that otherwise would not. I think that's a great place to leave this. And I just, Jonathan Keats, I want to thank you so much for being on Think Again. This has been a really interesting conversation that opened up a lot of surprising doors. Well, likewise, I really enjoyed it, as I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for having me on the program. To be continued. Absolutely. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. It's a little over a year since we launched the podcast. We've had 56 episodes, and it has been a very profound journey for me personally. I want to thank everyone that's been on any portion of it with us. If you're listening now, you're on the journey, so thank you for being there and sharing it with us. And I think it's an interesting time to take a look back at where we started, where we've been, and where we've ended up at this point. So the next two episodes are going to be kind of greatest hits mixtapes where we're gonna re-examine moments of interestingness that happened over the course of the show so far. For anyone in the audience who's in or near New York, next Tuesday night, that's July 26th, I, Jason Gotts, am going to be moderating a conversation at St. Francis College in Brooklyn at 7 p.m. between Elvis Costello and Mary Louise Parker, who have both just written very interesting and very different books about their lives. So I'd love it if you came out. I'd love it if you introduced yourself. I hope you can make it. And we'll see you next week on Think Again. <laughs> <laughs>